You're listening to I Have Some Notes, a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. Hey, Greg, I have a movie pitch for you. Hit me with it. What if we have a series of music videos showcasing blues legends and also blues traveler? Uh, that's not really a movie. What if we also kill John Belushi? I have some notes. Welcome, everyone, to I Have Some Notes. We've got a briefcase full of podcasts, and we're on a mission from God. I'm your host, Liam Kreswick. I'm Scott C. Bourgeois. I'm Greg Beaver. And uh, today we are talking about the 1998 film Blues Brothers 2000. Uh, But first, a follow-up from our last episode, a... Uh, I have some notes, uh, recap, if you will. Last episode, uh, we were talking about the color grading of Pitch Black, how it kind of looked weird on the Netflix stream, uh, comparing it to how things have looked on other Blu-rays, new films, old films, uh, and which platform, like specifically which streaming platform, seemed much better. Uh, so we asked our listeners uh, on, on Twitter and Facebook if anyone uh, knew why this would be, and our pal over at Cinematological Robin uh, has kindly reached out to us uh, to offer some unique insights. Uh, so instead of hoarding all of that knowledge for ourselves, uh, we brought him on today to share some of our quir- uh, share some of the quirks of the Netflix streaming. So please welcome everyone, uh, Robin from Cinematological. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for um, uh, following up on our on our request. It was incredibly interesting and insightful. I, that's a stretch, but I appreciate the kind words. <laughs> yeah. Um, research, field research. Can you? Uh, so it's a great Twitter thread. If you follow, I have some notes. You can you can see it uh, in our feed there. But uh, for, for obviously people who aren't going to drop drop what they're doing and go on, that, uh, on Twitter, uh, Robin, can you sort of summarize what you discovered? Well, so it comes down to a couple of different things. Um, Pitch Black was shot uh, on films, originated on thirty five mil, and then produced a digital intermediate, which was then mastered and the final product was then printed back out to film and that's how i saw it in theaters when it came out the movie that we see digitally now is a um it's a there's a master digital print basically that is distributed at different platforms and uh, i recently bought um pitch black on 4k uhd and and just as a as a to you know evangelical a bit here um 4k uhd is absolutely the best way to see cinema there's no better way um, and one of the things about Pitch Black is one of you guys, you guys had mentioned that like the, the DI, the color grade in the DI seemed really um, kind of like kids' first color grade. And it's actually way more subtle than that. And one of the big problems around streaming platforms is it doesn't matter really what resolution you're watching a movie at. Um, the resolution is, is not what's driving the image quality, the bitrate is. So a 4K UHD movie, which is usually between 60 and 90 gigabytes in size, has a bitrate sometimes between 50 to 75 megabits per second, right? Um, a 1080p Netflix stream is usually around one and a half two, to two megabits per second. And the, mm-hmm. the practical knock-on of this is that anytime you see a film that has, there's, there's kind of like a, a, a few elements in a film image that will destroy a streaming compression and bitrate. One is the color red or any, any gradient solid color. One is smoke. Uh, one is camera movement. Um, and then, um, and that's pretty much it. And, and the film grain, which is inherent in anything, was originated on 35. So Pitch Black has, <laughs> has solid color gradient, has cam- lots of camera movement, has lots of smoke, <laughs> and uh, is lots of film grain, uh, comparatively. So the color grade is actually way more subtle than you saw on Netflix. So on Netflix, it looks like a big smudge. It looks basically like in the images where it was like the yellow sun, instead of like having these beautiful yellow and orange hues that would fade off into, into really nice gradients. It was just blotches of brown and yellow 
Um, you couldn't even tell like people's hair. <laughs> we couldn't distinguish mm-hmm. of it, right? Because it was all merging into one big color sm- mess. So. You would actually on your on your feed, you, yeah. you know, posted uh, some excellent images, just comparing the the uh, the different resolutions, and and the the difference was stark. Um, yeah. Like you say, in the hair, just in itself, uh, there's so much more detail in the, in the uh, the 4K version of it. Yeah, I mean, the really important thing to understand is that if you've got a TV that's less than 65 inches, 4K is meaningless. You're not going to be able to tell the difference between a Blu-ray and a 4K unless you get to a larger size screen uh, or you're sitting in front of a, a monitor from you know 12 inches away. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's amazing because the, the 1080p or stream of Pitch Black on Netflix just looks like screaming hot garbage um, compared to any other way to see it. And that's that's a net, that's a Netflix thing. <laughs> Netflix has actually gone out of their way to reduce their bitrate during COVID because they're one of the biggest streaming developers or streaming uh, platforms like delivering to people. So their bitrate's been lowered. So we're paying more for less, really. Um, whereas Apple uh, TV at like iTunes has up rate up their bitrates uh, enormously. So like Ted Lasso on Apple TV looks amazing. Looks fantastic. Interesting, and that's the sort of thing like the average person wouldn't notice. Like the average person's yeah, watching a movie on their phone, <laughs> so no, yeah. they're not going to notice anything. Yeah, yeah. or well, or, they're, or they're watching a, mo- a movie for podcast research on their bed at night <laughs> with their laptop, <laughs> because their kids yeah. sleeping in the next room and they got to get it done. Right. I mean, it really depends on what matters to you, right? Like if you're somebody like me who you know grew up on movies, worked in the film industries, made movies, it's it image quality is king. You know, and but I totally get convenience. Like convenience is great. That's why we listen to MP3s. <laughs> yeah. Or not even that. I'm um, so old. We listen to Spotify. <laughs> <laughs> They're ACC files now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> as yeah, that's another whole thing. Streaming streaming platform uh, to unpack there. But uh, yeah, that was that was super insightful, uh, Robin. Thank you for for sharing that. And I actually realized I, I know this will be the third time on the podcast I mentioned it, but I just got a new TV for Christmas, and I might have to pick your brain to make sure I'm getting the most out of it because I've yep. I've ha- I've been rocking a clunker for years, and I've, I finally have a good one, and I I don't want to squander it. Yeah, but uh, say, Robin, while you're here, you want to stick around and talk about Blues Brothers 2000? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Wrong answer. The correct answer was no. <laughs> um, yeah, we uh, we just disc- uh, we watched uh, Blues Brothers 2000 this week for for the podcast. I uh, this was uh, famously my suggestion, uh, partly because I, I love the Blues Brothers, the original film, uh, and also because we're like we never do comedies, we never do musicals. I'm like, well, I got a comedy musical with like an even fifty on Rotten Tomatoes. You wanna? That's a uh, stretch. That's a stretch. Yeah. Calling it a comedy or a musical. <laughs> <laughs> it has 50 percent on rotten tomatoes i might be rounding up a little bit oh, okay. up or down but like it's 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 pretty mediocre rating yeah. um of course uh directed by uh john landis uh from the original blues brothers animal house stars dan Aykroyd, uh elwood blues uh john goodman is mighty mac mcteer bb king we got aretha franklin's back uh erica badu's in it kathleen freeman um all sorts of uh, uh recurring uh, blues guest stars and then of course not uh john belushi uh, for obvious reasons, it was made uh, 16 years after he died. Um, yeah, actually, before we get into this movie, uh, I, like I said, I love the original one. H- how do y'all feel about the the original Blues Brothers? Uh, well, I guess I'll, I'll go first. Um, this was kind of like homework for us. Like we wanted to watch the original. I mean, because I don't think me or Scott had seen it before nope. seeing Blues Brothers 2000. So it seemed uh, important to watch the good one before... We got into uh, the mediocre to bad one. Um, I I feel like I might have enjoyed Blues Brothers had I watched it at a much younger age. Like it, it seemed to me that it had a lot of the kind of dry dry wit that you know uh, a lot of other movies around that era had. Um, the closest proximity. I know these aren't. Clo- remotely the same movie but the closest thing i can think of is is like that sort of ghostbusters type humor where it's very uh every, you know very straight laced uh mm-hmm. humor and, and like the i i just think like for me like comedy is very much of its time and sometimes if you're watching it out of time it's hard to really relate to it and that's kind of how i felt watching uh the original 
um, there was definitely um, there was definitely you know some really good laughs. I got a good laugh out of the the uh, the, the opening sequence and the uh, sequence with the the nun. Uh, her slapping them around when they're swearing, uh, and the the chase scene at the end is legitimately awesome, just uh, on a on a spectacle scale, um, and, and quite funny. I, I, I'm not I, I, this movie just really wasn't uh, made for me. I'm like I'm not I'm not much of a music aficionado, and there's a lot of like good musical cameos that are just wasted on me. You know, if it wasn't, if it's not music from the '90s or early 2000s, it's like <laughs> it's out of my, out of my depth. Uh, so it, I I I probably didn't enjoy it as much as you might have hoped I would, Liam. Yeah, I, I have no horse <laughs> in this race. I lied. You know. uh, uh, Scott, um, I thought it was fine. <laughs> I might be I might be in the same boat as Greg in that I probably would have liked it had I seen it when I was younger and then rewatching it today would probably have filled me with like nostalgic feels and I, I did have a little bit of nostalgia because it, it as Greg said it was very much a comedy of its time and it made me think of other comedies that I enjoy from that time that I had seen when I was younger but much like Greg there were there were some references that clearly went over my head and it it is dated like it's not as funny as it may have been in its day um because it's such a product of its time but i mean that doesn't mean i didn't enjoy it uh like dan Aykroyd and john belushi are both very funny in it there's a lot of like surreal and wacky action and and it does have a kind of heightened level of reality that i appreciated and enjoyed like there are some some little subtle things too like how Carrie Fisher keeps trying to kill them and they don't acknowledge it or react to it until the end. Like at one point a building collapses on them and they get up and go, Oh, we're late for work and off they go. And I thought that was hilarious. (laughs) Um, And it's, there's little stuff like that in there that I really enjoyed, but overall the movie was kind of like, it's fine. (laughs) It didn't knock my socks off. I mean, it's a cartoon. You hadn't, hadn't seen it before this. Oh, very much. It's a cartoon. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like, the, but, like I was, when I was watching it in preparation for all of this, I, I came to understand that, like, there's no jokes in the original Blues Brothers. It's a bunch of sight gags, but there's no one liners. I mean, like, we're on a mission from God. That's not a joke. That's just a well delivered, like, mission statement. It's a plot device, right? So, mm-hmm. um, and, and the plot is ridiculously thin until you compare it to Blues Brothers 2000, you know? So, so it's a very entertaining <laughs> movie, but yeah, it's very of the 70s, but it's a musical. Like, it's a true musical. In that the the musical bits in the original one, they don't move the plot forward. Like they're not they're not plot narrative music. They're just vignettes, right? Of of, of really great musical performances. Um, as as on this like journey to you know reunite, reunite the band in order to save an orphanage, right? And that's the whole movie. That's that's the entirety of that story. There's yeah, no characters Greg, in it. <laughs> Greg had uh, mentioned while we were watching Blues Brothers 2000. Uh, he was curious if this movie might have worked as a broadway musical and i was i gave him a flat no and that's because the movie's not good um but here's the thing the original blues brothers could probably be adapted into a decent broadway musical yes like you you'd lose a lot of the action beats you wouldn't be able to have the giant car pile up on on stage (laughs) without some some incredible theater magic but uh i think that the the songs are strong enough and the like the book between the songs is is okay enough that you could put together a pretty strong stage musical of the original Blues Brothers. Mm-hmm. Unlike I mean, Blues Brothers 2000. I mean the themes are are still really appropriate because like in the 70s today you can be a white guy who causes massive property damage and not be shot by cops. Exactly. <laughs> So I was like, so, you know, the, the weird imagery of like, dri- like, I know it was reverse, but like driving a car into a crowd of Nazis was, I was like, this is a, this reads weird in 2021, but that yeah. was pretty great. That made me happy. Yeah. You, I just like, if they'd only known it'd be the Nazis doing the car driving into legitimate protests. Yep. Um, yeah. In, in many um, ways, the movie was ahead of its time. <laughs> in many ways. Yeah. I, I also just love the, the, the sort of the thrust of like, so many pissed off factions show up at the end. That's always sort of one of the, like you're correct. It's a very thin premise or a very thin storyline, but yeah, having brothers is kind of like a band on the run story. Mm -hmm. And 
you you get that by having them cheese off all of the wrong people along the way and then the beauty of the first one is that they they are able to tie up all those threads kind of themselves and Mm -hmm. ultimately pay the price for their actions uh something that does not happen in the sequel where the plot threads are all resolved by a wizard (laughs) and and then and then nothing happens okay so i have a question uh, for you like name a john landis movie that ends well Blues Brothers. <laughs> they it ends with it, them in jail, and that's how the movie should have ended. Right. <laughs> Are there any but more? I, I can't really think of one. No. <laughs> so I just watched Coming to America because I, I my partner wanted to watch Coming to America, the yeah. sequel. And there's a lot of similarities between Blues Brothers 2000s and and Coming to America. Um, it, Coming uh-huh. to America is a better movie. It's not a great movie, but it's a more entertaining movie. But like in terms of like John Landis as a filmmaker. Think about American Werewolf in London. Think about Coming to America. Those movies just end. Like, they don't have endings. They just end. Like, there's some, you know, deus ex machina comes in and literally resolves it with a line of dialogue and it ends. And and it's completely, unbelievably <laughs> unsatisfying. And that's his whole oeuvre is like that. Endings are hard. Yeah, endings are hard. Why bother? <laughs> so so just, just remove them and there you go. Yeah. <laughs> you just don't worry about it. Just have somebody say can't you do this to solve this? And they go, yes. And that's the end of the movie. <laughs> Someone, uh, some critic uh, wrote of coming to America that uh, the filmmakers struck while the iron was cold on making a <laughs> sequel to coming, uh, coming to America. And that stuck in my head while we were watching Blues Brothers 2000. Yeah. Like, wow, this, this sequel was way too late to be pertinent. Well, and there was I can't context, imagine right anyone now. was asking for it, right? But the, so I, I, you got to yeah. remember in the late nineties, there was a blues brothers tour that had been set up for a while, right. With Jim Belushi and, and Dan Aykroyd. So this movie was on the dot and the docket for a decade of them trying why to stand it, it up. Wait, why wasn't Jim Belushi in this movie? That's an excellent do, question. Do you want Jim Belushi in this movie? <laughs> Is Honestly, that- kind of. Yeah, I do. <laughs> So this was 20 years after the original movie. So there was a lot of nostalgia, right? And and yeah. when I think about, um, and, and we'll get into this later, but when I think about the original and I think about this movie 20 years later, it's for me, it's a metaphor for baby boomers. Because in the original movie, there's these hot young 20-somethings that are out there pissing vinegar trying to you know save an orphanage. And in the sequel... Um, they're at Mercedes, uh, you know, Benz dealerships making their money and then do a, a kind of pathetic uh, performance of respect and then go off to do nothing. So. <laughs> Sick. Oh, what does that say about Clerks 2 and Gen X then? Uh- <laughs> Don't even get me started. <laughs> as, as a Gen Xer. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so we yeah. Well, I'll that? I'll sit here patiently and wait for them to remake Scott Pilgrim and ruin my <laughs> millennial. <laughs> um, yeah, that's sick. Uh, well, let's uh, let's go to the the trailer for Blues Brothers 2000. When we come back, we'll talk about the the movie proper. On February sixth, from Universal Pictures, the Blues are back. I'm getting the band back together. The last time they played anywhere, they were charged with grand larceny, felonious motor vehicle assault, and damages in excess of $20 million. And you are asking me if I want to join this band? I could show you all the moves. Dan Aykroyd, John Goodman, Joe Morton, James Brown, Aretha Franklin, B.B. King, Paul Schaefer, Erica Badu, Travis Tritt, Bo Diddley, Dr. John, Steve Winwood, Wilson Pickett, Blues Traveler, Johnny Lang, and many more. The Blues Brothers Band? I thought you guys were all in jail. Elwood Blues, one half of the infamous Blues Brothers, is released from prison after 18 years in the slammer. And then he learns his brother Jake has passed away. And then Elwood makes his way to the St. Helen of the Blessed Shroud Orphanage to reconnect with his surrogate mother figure, Mother Mary Stigmata. And then she tells him his surrogate father figure, Curtis, has died. And then she introduces him to a precocious orphan named Buster, who's in need of a mentor. And then Elwood goes to see Curtis's son, who's a cop. And then he steals money from that cop. And then he goes to a strip club with the juvenile. 
And then John Goodman sings for some reason. And then there are some Russians. And then more stuff happens. And keeps happening. And then it ends. And then more stuff happens. Do we, yeah, do we want to start at the ending with like the weird yeah. uh, um, a Marvel stinger scene of James Brown being dragged off the camera? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's, yeah. that's, I mean, they, they shot a ton of footage for that movie that never got it made into the movie, right? So, so that, you know, that stinger stuff at the end with the James Brown, I mean, that, there's actually a line of dialogue where Elwood talks about they're going to go talk to him because they know him to borrow money for gas. So I'm assuming there was a whole scene there with James Brown that was intended that was lifted out because there was going to be another James Brown performance, right? So I don't know. It looks like it was shot in wardrobe. No, that's the like back of the tent. That's that's their changing <laughs> okay. area for the revival. Yeah, it was in the tent. <laughs> okay. I mean, it just like it just looked to me like like I could I could have sworn like like that's craft services in the background. <laughs> they were just like, we've got James Brown for a few more minutes. Let's just make him sing another song for us. No, with all the setups and that, that, that was actually a thing for sure. But like, it, that's actually what a on a set. That's what the craft tent looks like. <laughs> so, <laughs> the wardrobe tent. So. <laughs> So yeah, this uh, this film had even less of a plot. I think that's that's the what that's was the big plot, takeaway, Liam? Yeah. Explain the plot of this movie to me. Uh, stuff happens. <laughs> so I was even. I think yeah. it's, I think it's <laughs> Elwood. Elwood uh, wants to find the son of Curtis, his former <laughs> father figure, right? Yeah. And then he finds out that Curtis is a cop. And then they they drive around a bunch. But that's plot. Uh, You're talking about plot. <laughs> What's the actual yeah. movie? What's the so the story of the first movie is the Blues Brothers reunite after yeah. Jake gets out of jail, and they have to save an or- <laughs> orphanage by reuniting the band. That's yep. that's the that's the Blues Brothers. What's the log line for Blues Brothers two thousand? The it truly isn't one. Exactly. It's, it's yeah. there was a point where in the third act. Uh, John Goodman says, we just have to win this battle of the bands, and then stuff happens. And Greg legitimately was like, wait, battle of the bands? Did we know this was a battle of the bands? And the honest answer is no. That was the first time it had been mentioned. No, that's not true. It was it was mentioned when their their like lawyer guy that was in the first movie, he's in the in this in the 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 hot room, the sauna room with them, and it's in the guy <laughs> on the phone. He was like, it's got to be a battle of the bands with the, you know, this lady in Louisiana. It's, oh, it's like one line of dialogue. I thought it was just a gig. I didn't realize. I must have missed that. It but was but it's so easy to miss because it, there's no, there's no jokes. There's no setups. There's no payoffs. Yeah. Like there's literally nothing in this movie, <laughs> but except vignettes of, of like musical acts half-heartedly performing, right? Like, and, yeah. And a lot of callbacks to the original, a lot of empty, shallow callbacks to yeah. the original. With the exception of the one thing they don't do, which is like the thrust of like they need to get the band back together to get money to save something, and even then, I, I, there was a point where I'm like, wait, are they gonna have to get the band back together to save this strip club from Russians? That'd be sad. And she, oh wait, it's not even that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, most of it's it, there's there's a point where like the movie just starts to feel very surreal, and I think I think that's when they get to the the outdoor. Um, did they call it bluegrass? Yeah, yeah it was a blue. I they get my wife got very, very <clears throat> angry at that because, like, the song they played wasn't bluegrass. <laughs> I also noticed that. <laughs> well, yeah, there's no banjos, so you need banjos. You're gonna do bluegrass. But yeah, then it like suddenly there's a, there's a very surreal turn where, um, you know, the, the the four horsemen of the apocalypse show up in a, in a storm and stuff like that, and then we get and then we start getting all kinds of of supernatural stuff uh and yeah it just it feels it feels like suddenly that there's there's it's kind of like a fever dream either that yeah. or the, the, there were the cocaine budget of the film went like skyrocketing halfway through uh, the first blues brothers had a surreal undercurrent to it, mm-hmm. it as, as robin said it was it's very much a cartoon but it's set up early that that's the case as early as like act one when they go to the church that's mm-hmm. where things like Reality turns up to 11 at that point, and it never goes back down. So when weird, wacky, cartoonish stuff happens in the original Blues Brothers, you're like, you're already in that mindset. You you just buy it, you accept it, you move on. In this movie, though, the first two-thirds of the movie are very grounded in reality, and then all of a sudden, 
cartoon stuff starts happening. And it's very jarring because the movie hasn't earned a wizard showing up and doing wizard stuff to people. <laughs> like, If I can even go to bat, the, some of the wizard stuff didn't even bug me. I think the, like, Riders of the Apocalypse, I'm like, sure. The the, the uh, Erica Badu is a voodoo priestess. Even then, I'm kind of, like, here for it because you get Paul Schaefer making people zombies. It's great. But the one, the part that got me was the uh, remote control in the Bluesmobile. <laughs> Where I'm like, he bought that for $500. What do you mean it's got a remote control with it? Where? When? Like, what? And so it's like, I, I kind of like, the world they live in is surreal, but they are, they are new. You know what I mean? They are grounded. And the fact that he's just like, you know what I mean? Like, have all the wizard shit you want, but they're not mad. Like, they don't have gadgets coming out of their ass. Like, the scene before that, Elwood's face is in the dash of the car because he's hiding from the cops. I mean, that's, right. that's yeah. where you're like, I can't buy a remote. I, I kind of like, fa- like I'd forgotten about how stupid that was. I just was like, this is just a bad sight gag. Like someone thought it was funny. Because yeah, the proportions make no sense. His ass would be up the engine. Like it'd be. It's, I mean, like wh- I think about this, right? And I think about like there's a bit where the car drives underwater, right? Mm-hmm. And I literally, I I was angrily texting at Bradshaw <laughs> that scene. <laughs> but it's 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 there's no setup for it, and like think about Strange Brew. By the time the van goes off into the harbor and they're underwater, surviving because they're sucking the air out of their beers, we're yeah. prepared for that as an insanity, right? We're prepared for that because the movie's already set up how goofy this world's going to be. There's nothing in this in Blues Brothers two thousand that sets up any of this reality at all. So, so it's all just like somebody throwing goofy ideas at a wall and seeing what sticks, right? Yeah. Like tonally, the movie's all over the place, and and oh yeah, not in a good way. Um, I was talking to Anita about it, and I said, you know, the first movie was, I mean, famously fueled by drugs, and that had to extend to the writing process as well. It's it's clearly a bunch of people sat down, did a ton of blow. And wrote a script and then came back to it a few days later when they'd sobered up and and made sense of it. Um, And this movie feels like a bunch of 40-plus-year-olds trying to recapture the magic that they had in their 20s when they were high on blow writing a script, but not actually getting high on blow. (laughs) And so it's – you can't recapture that. You can't – you can't do that artificially. And that kind of weird stream of consciousness – nonsense isn't going to feel natural when you're just trying to write it down or trying to copy what you did before. In many cases, this movie just copies what it did before. I think you're, you're giving way too much credit to the idea that this is not just middle-aged cokeheads doing this. Cause like, like yeah, very well could be. Um, yeah. there's a lot of like very sweaty upper lips in this movie. Like, <laughs> like, especially on Ackroyd. So, which could be just coincidence, or he could be high. So, I don't know. But to, to say that they weren't all coked out of their head, just in that pathetic middle age way, um, yeah, I think is is uh, not unlikely. Fair there enough. was a there's a there's um there's a scene in this movie that really exemplified to me just like just how you know hard the movie was trying to find a laugh. And just it wasn't happening. And that was um, the scene in which Ackroyd bursts out of the washroom in a mask of shaving cream. And just every every actor in that scene is desperately trying to make this funny. And it's not funny at all. And I just felt sad for everybody that was involved. Yeah. Yeah, John Goodman's great in this movie. He really does I've, show up. Yeah. He even show like he helps try to sell the stupid shaving cream scene, and yeah. he like. Well, John, John Goodman is great, and I want to go up and give him a giant teddy bear hug. And he's fantastic in every movie he's in. He maybe shouldn't have been in this movie still. Yeah, that we'll get into that when we get to changes. But yeah, I've got I got thoughts. <clears throat> like I, I'm trying to even be like, oh, but you know the music. At least the music was good. And it's like, no, everyone. It was like weirdly kind of half-hearted. Like some of the dancing early on, like the the, the uh, phone sex line one, was like at least had fun colors. But like so, like even the even the Aretha Franklin song. It's just like no one else is dancing in the background. Like none of like the original one with Aretha Franklin. There's people in the, in the street. Like it's a whole thing. This it's like five people in this Mercedes Benz dealership. Happen yeah, to be I dancing see. while everyone else works. 
I said if everyone in that dealership wasn't dancing in a musical number by the end of it, it was a waste of time. And sure enough, it was a waste of time. One thing that jumped out at me was that um, a lot of times they'd have background dancers doing doing dancing in the in these musical numbers, and then they'd cut to John Goodman and Dan Aykroyd and the kid all also doing dancing, but like miles away from where the background dancers are. And I was like, why not? Why aren't you dancing together? Why aren't you putting on a big number? Why is it constantly cutting between two different dance numbers going on? I know and the answer it, to that. It really bothered me because they were being shot on different days. Absolutely. The second unit, second unit did all of the the dancing with all of the the dancers, and then first unit did you know the, the primary actors. That's why. Cost and it's very jarring, and I hate it. <laughs> you need you need to be a, a person who cares about their craft to to want to make these things good. So if you want to if you want to schedule everything properly, where you can, where you can get everyone together. I hated yeah, this movie. Yeah, I just yeah wanna, it's I, a, it's <laughs> a it's a pretty it's a pretty big bummer for the most part. Uh, I at one point, um, Liam asked if we were if we were bored sitting through it. Um, perhaps alluding to Robin Hood, <laughs> which, <laughs> which we were really bored, and and I and and that one that one was on me, but like. I don't I don't know that I was I was necessarily bored. I just like there was nothing I don't know, like I, I you know, I I was I was intrigued enough by the the mess that it was that it was holding my attention. Um so it was holding my attention in kind of the worst possible way. <laughs> yeah, I was actually kind of bored by it and it's because there was nothing for me to invest in that was happening. Yeah. Um Greg even mentioned at one point, like angrily texted like uh it could could there be a conflict in this movie that isn't resolved in the same scene it's because there was there was nothing there was nothing that the movie was giving me that made me want to care about what was happening and so by about halfway through i was like i just i just have to buckle in and like try to try to pay attention for the rest of this movie because like it's it's actively trying to keep me from being invested yeah. in it somehow i gotta spend an hour talking about this thing and <laughs> so yeah. i've got to make sure that i'm paying oh, no. i spent attention. way too much time thinking about how to fix this movie don't misunderstand <laughs> yeah like the only the only i don't know a conflict that has that lasts longer than one scene i think is the uh, uh the uh curtis like the the or curtis's son I don't yeah. remember his name. He like that. And even that's like, technically that's only two scenes. Cause it's only like he, you, you get the setup with him and Aykroyd at the beginning where he tells, he, he blurts out that, you know, his, his father wasn't his real father. And, uh, he kicks him out, uh, of the cop shop. Uh, and then it's just, you know, a series of the cop chasing the blues brothers for ages. And then we get to the tenth scene at the end where, he ma- he gets he realizes that he's a blues brother by magic and it's like that's the that's kind of like i guess the movie's big arc i don't know so <laughs> it was, it, yeah it's just it's so and it's and it's <laughs> resolved at the end of act 2 <laughs> yeah yeah if you can call it that yeah i mean it wouldn't be a john landis movie without magic black people in it so <laughs> is that a staple of his that a lot of his movies that aren't entirely just white people. I, I think people. I remember at one point texting Rutro when they mentioned Voodoo because that usually doesn't go particularly well in in, <laughs> in movies of this time. I don't know that anything in in this was like outright offensive. Uh, I I can't I can't think of something where it just like it it made me cringe too much, but it was like I don't know maybe. I don't know. What did you guys think? Well, Liam actually at one point said, "Does is this movie like sex worker positive? Is that surprisingly progressive for a 1998 film?" Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure, but there are three. There are three different songs that take place in where sex workers work. One, two, two in a strip club. One in a phone sex line, and it was like on the phone sex line. I'm like. I can't, but I, I'm like, is that just extrapolated male gazy, or is it like a progressive pr- depiction of, of working women in 1998? I don't know. I'm, I'm probably giving the whole crew too much credit. They probably just wanted to do it's number one. Be near titties. <laughs> What's that, Robin? Sorry, it's number one. John Landis likes him some ass. So yeah, <clears throat> bummer. I mean, Dan Aykroyd's character um, uh, has a few lines of, about not judging. Um, 
Curtis's son's uh, mother for for having cheated on his his father. Like he's like, I don't I don't judge at all. So that's I guess that's that's kind of progressive. He was he he, he understood the situation that she would have been in and didn't blame her for it. So that's something. Like we got to remember that the original point of the Blues Brothers mythos is that uh, you have to appropriate you know, blues and R&B music and have two white guys present it so it's palatable to mainstream audiences, right? right so, yeah. like, no, there's nothing I, I, I don't know that that's fair. I looked up the history of the SNL sketch and it seemed just like Dan Aykroyd really liked playing the blues. Oh, no, they, they, uh, it was really easy to get John Belushi uh, very excited about things <laughs> and way too invested in it. And fortunately, it was the blues. Unfortunately, it was also heroin. Um, <laughs> and they just like spent a couple years doing like the, the, the music was genuine. They'd perform as the musical guest on Saturday Night Live once uh, and, and did just performed blues. But the like character in the backgrounds were fictitious. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was sort of the bit. And so like that in a vacuum is like, I think, pretty wholesome and fine. I would, you know, like, right. But then there are two guys who started to like blues and then they played blues together and they made a blues band. And then and they but, used the fact they're on Saturday Night Live to push it. But then they made a movie in which they had Cab Calloway as like the third lead. Right. And then made him a secondary character in it. They had, you know, Ray Charles. Like, they have all these, like, incidental people of color that show Mm -hmm. up who are actually blues icons, who are actually legitimate, you know, authentic, you know, arbiters of this music. And, but uh, until Jake and Elle would show up to pat them on the head, it's not valid, right? Or, or beat them in a battle of the bands. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right <laughs> actually they lose the battle of they, the they lose oh did they one. yeah okay. and Eric Clapton's in that so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay so that, that I just think I, I think I just revealed how little I was paying attention <laughs> towards the end of that movie because I thought you they didn't notice won. Eric Clapton <laughs> no 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 I, I uh, well sort of sort of didn't notice him I, I was like I, I recognize that guy's face but I don't know why and then I had, and then Aaron had to tell me how many of you guys knew who Johnny Lang was when he started singing in the middle of a of a song? oh I don't know and I hated it that was my least favorite part oh yeah Johnny that guy's Lang voice is huge in the nineties huge <laughs> I wish I wish our listeners could see the face I'm making in our call He's, it was it was look up the, the Johnny Lang song on YouTube from this this video or this movie if it's there it's the it's the worst part of the movie in my opinion. <laughs> Is it the voice that was grating on you? His like, voice, the way yeah. he like he he like put so much gooey stank on his like <laughs> blues voice that I was like repulsed. It's it's yeah, it was Chad Kroger esque, you know, '90s sound, right? So yeah, and don't get me wrong, I'm a Nickelback fan, you know. So, but Jenny Lang sucks. He's we we all sucked. were at one point. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh. My my only note for this movie is John Belushi should still be alive. Someone someone should have given him less uh, heroin in uh, uh, 1982 is really my note. So let's go to the break and we'll hear your guys' uh, uh, fixes for this film. Then. Today I want to tell you about ATB's new podcast, The Future Of. Join Todd Hirsch, ATB's Vice President and Chief Economist, as he connects with special guests who offer unique and useful perspectives about the future. Explore how our economy and communities can not only brace for change, but embrace the opportunity it creates. From the future of women in business to the changing nature of work itself, the future of helps us understand what's coming and what we need to do today to get the tomorrow we want. Featuring two episodes each month plus bonus episodes, The Future Of includes interviews with top community and business leaders from Alberta and around the world. Subscribe to The Future Of in the Apple Store, Google Play, Spotify, and everywhere podcasts are found, and connect to ask your questions about the future by emailing thefutureof at atb.com. Welcome back to I Have Some Notes. We're talking about Blues Brothers 2000 uh, Podcast Brothers. Let's fix this movie. I'll go first. Let's do it. Uh, sure. No notes. Oh. <laughs> because for the first time, I'm actually completely blanked on on where to even start. And it's funny because like one of the one of the listeners commented um, that the movie is unfixable, and we usually get about one of those comments 
uh, every time we, we put out a request that the, the movie is unfixable. Uh, this might be the first time that I agree <laughs> with that sentiment. I know Scott, you've got a, you've got a lot. To, you've you've you said that you had uh, thought thoroughly about this and perhaps yeah. too much. So so why don't you? Uh, well, <laughs> why I mean, you give us a start off. My my fix is very much a page one rewrite. Don't <laughs> misunderstand. Um, if you have to make this movie, though, uh, I think there is a way to do it. And unf- the only caveat I have is that this is coming from the benefit of hindsight. And it comes from the cultural headspace that we are in today that um, in regards to to nostalgia and uh, the way that we consume it and the way it's packaged for us, that unfortunately back in 1998, it's a headspace that would have been completely alien to them. Like they would not have had the context that I have today to make the formulation that I was able to put together to to create a Blues Brothers sequel. Um, but I do have an idea and I think it's an okay idea and it ultimately would be a meta commentary on how irreplaceable John Belushi is. Go Good. On. Have I, have I got your attention? Yes. Okay. So you have Elwood blues get out of prison. You start the movie off the same and learn that, uh, that his brother has died, that, uh, that Jake has, has gone on to meet, uh, his maker and it leaves Elwood kind of in a weird place because he's like, well, what do I do? Like uh, Jake is gone. I'm by myself. I don't have any direction. Um, all I had was the band. And with that kind of in his mind, he goes to try to put back together the blues brothers, but without Jake. And the first part of the movie then follows him failing to do that because as he approaches all the band members, they're all not interested in doing it without Jake. They're like, we can't, we're not the blues brothers without Jake blues. Like, I don't know what we are. We're not, we're not going to do this. And in that way, you you have an initial subversion of the first movie because where in the first movie, they were able to get the band back together. Elwood by himself can't get the band back together. And as the movie progresses and as you get into the second and third act, Elwood realizes that he can never recapture what he had because Jake is gone, but he might be able to find something new. And over the the latter half of the movie, he starts putting together a new band that isn't the Blues Brothers, but is something new and great in its own right. And in that way, again, the movie becomes kind of a meta commentary about how you can't really have a Blues Brothers sequel without... John Belushi, but maybe you can have your own cool movie with music and comedy in it. And I think that that's how they should have approached the movie by kind of acknowledging the elephant in the room (laughs) and trying to transition into doing something new. And I think that 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 could have worked and that could have been really interesting. They did not do that. (laughs) 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 But what what do you guys think? Like that's great. I I think just for what you said said there, that's that's a a wonderfully. Uh, succinct and earnest way to to like bring some 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 like any amount of emotional uh investment into this movie yeah. and is I mean, to give Elwood, them something to chase yeah yeah and elwood can be like he he never really needs to change by the end of the movie he can still be elwood blues with his hat and his glasses and his suit but he's in a different band and the band <clears throat> isn't the blues brothers and that's kind of his journey is his journey away from that that glory that he can't have anymore because his brother is dead and into finding himself and finding something new. That's maybe different, but still good. His brother and Curtis. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Like, but I fundamentally that's, that's basically my pitch for the movie. That's how you make the blues brothers sequel. You don't, you don't try to remake the first movie without John Belushi. You acknowledge that Belushi's gone and that you can't make the sequel without him. So you're doing something different. Yeah. That's great. I think that's pretty good. I mean, I have a spin on it that's more more mytholo- you know, mythologically based around the the Blues Brothers. Go oh, by all means. Please, yeah. So, so my so Joe Morton plays Cal- Caleb, who's who's um um Curtis's son, Cab Calloway's son in the movie. It's actually it's he's actually named after Cab Calloway, which is hilarious. So my idea, I mean, it's a tone thing too, right? Because 
if you do you either do you make it a musical in the way the first movie is where there it's a bunch of vignettes that have no narrative heft or do you make it a musical like a modern musical where there's narrative to the, the musical pieces right so what i wanted to do is i wanted to have joe morton's character open the movie uh learning that he is the illegitimate son of, of cab calloway of curtis and it goes out and you know and tries to figure out who he is with this new father figure that he never knew and stumbles across the blues brothers the legend of the blues brothers and he goes out um seeking the who the blues brothers were because they were very important to his father uh at that point he uh he finds out jake's dead right and then we discover that elwood has given up music and is a greeter at walmart um and the band has been broken up for 20 years so elwood becomes the MacGuffin. Right, it's convincing Elwood that he needs to come back to the Blues Brothers. Um, so uh, Cable goes back. At Cable. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Cable goes back in time. Ca- Caleb, <laughs> he, he, Cab goes and tries to re- reunites the band. Right, he's the one with the mission that we have to reunite the band because we're on a mission from God, and the mission mm-hmm. from God is to save Elwood's soul. Right, and by saving Elwood, he gets more connected to his father. So as he reunites the band, they have all these musical bits that are narrative but also have wonderful R&B artists performing them but have a real emotional thrust because this is a, a man trying to reconnect to a father he never knew using the mythology of these blues brothers and so Elwood is constantly shooting him down until Elwood finally gets convinced in a, in a like a John Lee Hooker way of like this broken beat up blues player sitting in a corner who has to be seduced back to playing and puts on the hat and, and steps back out on stage and then Elwood realizes that there's a life after Jake and that, that the, he didn't have to give up everything just because his brother died. And so then both of these men, you know, to make it male centric, um, find meaning in their lives in the second half of their lives and a connection to family they never had before. That is also an excellent amazing plot. I, yeah. I, I, <laughs> I don't know that I have anything to, to really add to either of these. I, I think those are, those are both very good pitches, um, I, Scott. I think what I what I like about yours is that I it, I mean, not only is it, is it meta as a metaphor for um, not being able to you know do over Blues Brothers again and going on and doing something new, but I think I feel like that's also sort of a, a very good metaphor for grief because you you know it's like things things have changed and you can't they're never going to be the same again and the, and that the the only thing to do is to to keep moving past past it and trying and, and uh and enjoy what's new uh and different in your life you know yeah i mean yeah. jj Elwood Blues, he, lo- he loves the blues. And like, what is what is grief if not love persevering? You know, like, like- <laughs> oh, my God. It's <laughs> very good. It's very good. Uh, I like That's that nothing. Robin and I both both hit upon a similar theme for Elwood. And I, I do like the idea of recentering the movie on uh, on Cab. Uh, I will say that that's that's an interesting take I hadn't considered because he's I the was best kind of singer. On, <laughs> well, and I was I was legit kind of fixated on uh, on Elwood being the main character, like he is in in the current version of the movie. So uh, moving it away from him is is an interesting uh, decision, and I, I actually do kind of like that. I mean, yeah. it makes Elwood an icon now, right? Like instead of being because yeah. there's well, and it makes Jake an icon too, right? Like, and Jake is the Jake is the lost icon, <clears throat> and Elwood is the icon who's fading. And they don't, they're not characters. Like they aren't actually people who have feelings in any of these movies. Right. So it's yeah. like, so you, what do you do with a, with a character that isn't a character? It's just, an, it's not even archetype. It's just a paper cutout. You make him, you yeah. make him an icon, right? You put him up on the thing that you're pursuing. Well, and then you, get the, yep. you get the theme of the broken icon too, because when he finally catches up with him, Elwood is a shadow of the man he was because he's no longer that iconic person. Right. Uh, I I hope you're right, Robin. I hope this this would be a good fix because I'm slightly worried what you've pitched is the plot to the next Ghostbusters movie. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I'm willing to see it. So yeah, let's let's hope this is how you do it properly, and the next Ghostbusters movie is good. Because I'm like, wait a minute, that's yeah, that's like at the the fucking Stranger Things kid looking at the car in the Listen, field. As, or whatever. A, as a middle aged man who saw Ghostbusters when he was 13. That speaks to me in a way you can't understand yet. <laughs> um, sweet. I, I think you both really got, got a, a deeper um, 
I'd even say like what the, the either version of of what you guys pitched is even deeper than than even the the original one because all I my my pitch was just other than the the glib like you know keep John Belushi alive um, truly was just like the thrust of the first one as you said so eloquently in the beginning uh, Robin is just like they need to get the band back together to save an orphanage that's it so the this movie if nothing else they need to get the band back together to save literally anything Mm -hmm. like a strip club would have been shitty but at least a a plot you know what i mean like so i think you and 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 then it would have as much to string it all together as the original one did and it could have just been a slightly weaker but like it still would have at least had a plot you know what i mean if it Mm -hmm. just had the one thing it didn't crib from the first one was (laughs) Was the basic motivation of the movie (laughs) oh yeah like this movie doesn't have an inciting incident even you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, there's no, there's no kickoff to the plot. It just, it just happens. This one, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Two thousand. Yeah. It's terrible. Like maybe well, the think, kid, but not. I think that not the, even. Well, my version of it is that like, the inciting incident is him learning that Jake is yeah. dead, and that sets him on his journey to try to recapture that, and ultimately fail, and realize that he needs to move on. And and but and the weird thing is that that's the same inciting incident for your version. We both hit upon the loss of Jake really needing to be a more driving factor in, in the movie than it is in the extant script. I mean, because he finds out he's dead and then eh, that's it. Like, yeah, I mean, it's, the, it's not really a thing. The, the inciting incident in mind is cab learning about his, his, his father and that he was illegitimate, right? Like that the entire oh, emotional yeah, heft of the movie is on cab, right? right? I don't know how you split up the band, but do you think both of your premises work in tandem? Like if they're revolving around each other, trying to like, Re, re relive the the you know what he lost in Jake and find out about his long lost dad if they sort of like circle the drain of each other and then yeah. come together and be like we were looking for the same thing I we're think, blues yeah, brothers Elwood chasing you know in a crappy house band trying to do and probably not even doing R and B anymore trying to do whatever. Right, yeah. trying to do crappy, you know, Bob Seger yeah, covers whatever's or something. Popular at the time, yeah, <laughs> like, like, <laughs> like a some, lounge try, trying to do his impression of, uh, of of what was popular in 1998. Eve Six, <laughs> uh, Spice Girls. <laughs> Spice He's Girls. doing what the guys in the first movie were doing, the like shitty, yes. the 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 house band, yeah, exactly. So and then and then Cab shows up with the original band and is like, you know what, you're better than this, man. Yeah, it could work. Yeah, sweet. I think either way we with like 24 hours of, of earnest thought came up with a better premise <laughs> than was actually put to film in this version of, in the actual version of the movie. Well, well it I sounds mean, like no a lot cocaine. was cu- good. No, co- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a lot was cut from this movie. Do you think maybe, maybe this was there and they just had to like, when they, in, in, it got lost in editing. How no. do you lose? Okay, so there's like a bunch of trains of thought about how you cut a movie down, right? One of the more ones that I find more useful is the James Cameron train of thought is that when your movie's too long, you take out a whole subplot. You just take this, you just lift it out, and then it it basically the movie trucks on without it, and you, and you ADR over any references to that subplot, right? Other movies try to like you know, tweeze out and cut around things to try and retain the subplots, and but shorten the movie. In order to remove the entire story, <laughs> Blues Brothers 2000, and then fill it with all the junk they had. Like, they didn't have enough junk. Like, it wasn't like it's wall-to-wall action or wall-to-wall music. There's mm-hmm. all kinds of moments in there that are just gut-bustingly terrible, right? So, yeah. it's like, so, no, I don't think it was lost in editing. I think I think they had a bad script, they shot a bad movie, <laughs> and then they the editor tried to make anything usable out of it. Yeah. Right. And then put it out. So yeah, I don't I don't think there's any saving this within the other footage. Yeah. Sweet. Well I think uh yeah, I think we've uh definitely put like you said, put much more effort than the original uh (laughs) creators did. Um so kudos to us. Let's all do a song and dance about it. Uh (laughs) also put Jim Belushi in the movie. No. Yeah, sorry, that was, I, thank you, hang on, I was gonna comment that, as you guys were going through, it was a, a comment I had a minute ago, and we got derailed, yeah, we're, none of you guys thought to add Jim Belushi, so I stand with my question, did you really want Jim in it? 
I mean, did we want to add Jim Belushi? No, no. Like I, like I don't care about John Goodman's character in this. I don't care yeah. about. I, I care about Ed Morton or Joe Morton's character because, like, he's actually tied to Curtis Cab Calloway in the first movie, yeah. right? Like, yeah. there's a there's a through line there. I could give less than a fuck about Jim Belushi or John Goodman, man. Like, get them out of there. Like, like the kid too. The kid, oh, the yeah, kid is yeah. so pointless. <laughs> at least he wasn't cringy like the kid was like as a character was pointless but at no point was the kid like oh man this fucking kid again the magic harmonica kid like n- no <laughs> <laughs> fair uh cool well uh, speaking of magic harmonica kids thanks to our listeners who uh, comment on facebook I know, is that a segue uh, yeah sure it why is not? it is now. It is now. Should have just stuck it. Uh, thank you to everyone who comments on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, we've got some uh, feedback from you. Not only did we ask for your notes on Blues Brothers 2000, but we also wanted to know uh, just like best and worst SNL movies. Um, so even before listener comments, uh, 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 Robin, Greg, uh, Scott, w- what are your favorite Saturday Night Live movies? Now, are we specifying movies that are based on SNL sketches or are we including the entire SNL canon? By a, let's say sketches. Yeah. <laughs> Just to well, because it. there are some movies that are that are like co-produced by SNL that aren't based on actual ske- sketches. Like The Three Amigos is an SNL movie. It's not based on anything. I see what you're saying. Um, yeah. Yeah. C- count them. Count them all. If Lauren, if Lauren had his sticky fingers on it, you can count it. <laughs> uh, Wayne's World and Wayne's World 2 are, are my Naturally, favorite. Naturally, obviously. McGruber yeah. is apparently quite good. I, I admittedly have not seen it myself. It's it's a terrible yeah. kind of funny. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I think McGruber's up there for me. Um, Wayne's World, for sure. Uh, do you know Night at the Roxbury came out the same year as this? Really? Oh, really? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think the, the, like the original Booze Brothers might, might be my favorite, and like, yeah, I I, I don't know. Uh, there, there's some like some later ones, like uh, Superstar. I think is very good. Um, I remember it. Sorry, let me, let me rephrase that. I remember enjoying it. It's been <laughs> 20 years since I watched it. But like Molly Shan. Um, cool. Well, that's uh, and then any worst SNL movies? Like, do you guys uh, do you recall any particularly like tough to watch I mean, ones? This one. <laughs> It's Pat. <laughs> it's Pat. Yeah. Oh, I. Yeah. I've never seen it's, it. Oh man. Don't. It, it's Coneheads like, is pretty bad. I have seen Coneheads, and I did not like it. Hmm. Bummer. Um, I also. I'm just gonna say the uh, the the current Uber Eats ads with Wayne and Garth uh, are probably my least favorite uh, Wayne and Garth print <laughs> product. He. I. I uh, Michael Myers doesn't look like he's aged so much as just been stung by bees. Oh, <laughs> like he, <laughs> oh no. I, I take the LRT here at Edmonton and they're all over the LRT and every morning I just see like... <laughs> I, uh, I'm just kind of sad that they're shilling for Uber Eats, honestly. Yeah. Anyway, the listener comments uh, for both Blues Brothers 2000 and SNL flicks. Uh, Andrew Craig says, no Belushi, no sequel. I know he's dead, so just don't make the sequel. More seriously, I think this suffered from a little, too little, too late. Uh, if it had been made in the late 80s or early 90s, sure. 2000, no. Technically 1998, but I yeah. think the point The point stands. And, and I even mentioned it earlier. They they were not... They were, <laughs> they were not making this sequel at a time when people were clamoring for a Blues Brothers sequel. Did you, was it? I can't remember if it was before or after we started recording. Did you refer to it as striking while the iron was cold? I'm pretty sure that <laughs> yeah. we were recording when I said that. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Like, is the is the is the cycle of nostalgia? Is it closer to twenty years? Mm-hmm. But here's the thing: if you're if you're talking about the cycle of nostalgia, though, you don't make a sequel twenty years later. You do a remake twenty years later. <laughs> well, I don't know. I, I mean. I think either or, as long as it's part of the property, I don't know that it makes uh, that much of a difference. But it seems to me that like a lot of nostalgia stuff, really, if you were if you were uh, a teen or under, um, usually like a lot of the time that the the nostalgia stuff starts to hit you around 30, 35. So you're looking at like 15, 20 years later uh, for for stuff like, you know, for us, it, it was like. Uh, Ninja Turtles and Transformers, the movie coming out, and and that yeah. kind of stuff. When they're when they're doing like the darker takes in order to sort of appeal to this this grown up audience of this once childhood property. So I, I think that works for like most things. 
Yeah. It, as long as it, as long as it was tickling your fancy when you're when you're a little kid, like twenty years later, it's probably going to be the time they're going to try and hit you with it. <laughs> what doesn't make sense is uh, taking a property like uh, Tom and Jerry and and being like, "Hey, that's a thing that nobody remembers anymore. <laughs> let's, yeah. let's do a modern movie about that." That's baffling. That movie. Who's <laughs> I, like, a, like I, I I've never seen a like a like a Tom and Jerry cartoon like I like and I'm like like I'm in the sort of like that just exiting that key sort of like you know movie going demo so it's just like it's it it's so weird to me that that that's what they decided to to try and and hang their hat on. Yeah, let's put it this way: uh, Itchy and Scratchy is based on Tom and Jerry, and Itchy and Scratchy was kind of the nostalgic, joking, winking. Uh, reference to Tom and Jerry, and it was made by adults who were writing The Simpsons when I was a kid. <laughs> I mean, I think Tom and Jerry was is a '60s thing, right? So, like, yeah. <laughs> Nathan Martin comments, "Oof, I can't wait to hear how you fix this." thing uh not even the rock could fix this thing other snl movies that i did like wayne's world and mcgruber but yeah good luck with this one i mean it did hold the guinness book of records for the biggest car pile up but it's a brain fart of a movie i think it's the yeah, first I mean, one still they only they only did no it's this one uh, oh, they this only one? did it to outdo the original two like that's Makes the sense. reason why the car wreck is in this movie yeah yeah, yeah that wasn't so unearned so unearned yeah in this flick yeah. Like everything else in this movie, it was unearned. <laughs> when it when it lasted long enough to to get a chuckle out of me, that's when I said like that was the first legitimate laugh I got out of it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like it's uh, the thing is is like we haven't even mentioned it until now, so it wasn't Nita even something it, that any of us like really took note of. Nita called it a very expensive sight gag. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the interesting thing about it is is how 4K and UHD kind of ruin old movies because they strip away all of that like you know release print grain um in the original car crash in the original movie there's guys in those cars there's stunt people driving those cars in this one you can't do that because you kill stunt people doing that yeah so all the cars are on launchers um it's not people driving them into things so it's it's you know and it's very apparent watching the 1080p version of this that it's like there's nobody in any of these cars yeah yeah what's what's fun about it if you're not putting stuntmen in danger right <laughs> and then and then not giving them any acknowledgement or an oscar <laughs> yeah there's a there's a guy on this movie who's uh had to get his leg amputated on blues brothers 2000 because of a, an accident on set oh no yeah it's a uh, safety is a concern with the landis production <laughs> yeah. remin ostad says this is unfixable that's Yet. it. That's the tweet. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> um, I mean, technically, I, I did fix page one technically rewrites, we did so. page one. Rewrites, yes. <laughs> Tech says, so I've seen this one, but not the original. I've picked up from context clues. This was a disappointment at best. For what it's worth, maybe have more jokes. There's a uh, lot of a, singing. A joke. <laughs> a joke. Any jokes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, any humorous tone that the first one had. Uh, there's a lot of singing, but not a lot of humor to pull me through. Also, controversially, the best SNL movie is Groundhog Day. Sorry, Ghostbusters. Not, not technically an it SNL movie. Does not I think either of them are. Or is is Ghostbusters? No, it's Ghostbusters. I, yeah, yeah, I don't. I don't think. Oh, the presence of Bill Murray does not make you. A don't make it. I was going to say it's not just a lum. It's like yeah, Elf is my favorite SNL movie. Like. <laughs> I mean, uh, if, we, if you want to say movies by SNL alumnus, sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> Groundhog Day and Ghostbusters are both are both solidly up there, but probably not yeah. not actually SNL movies. Sorry, Tech. Uh, and then a friend of the show, Olav Rockney, says uh, Stuart saves his family is the best SNL movie, and I will die on this hill. <laughs> uh, he actually, I've talked to Olav about it. He has he has genuinely and earnestly hyped me up on Stuart saves his family, and I'm, I'm looking to watch it. Robin, have you ever seen it? Yeah, it's actually surprisingly good. It's it kind of got slammed at the time because Stuart was as burned out as a concept, but and people were tired of SNL movies when it came out. But sure. it's actually wildly kind of interesting movie. Uh, Phil Hartman, for those that don't know, it was a. Uh, I wasn't even familiar with that character uh, until I, I went and looked up Stuart Smalley sketches from Saturday Night Live. But he's a. It's like a self help guy. It's it's 
it, it, Stuart Smalley into today's in the 2021 context would actually be a banger of a character because <laughs> it's, it's all about self-actualization. Yeah, but it's presented in this sort of like very um, mid 90s kind of gay panic way. Um, mm-hmm. So it, that's not great. <laughs> but <laughs> sure. but uh, but as a character who's who's like basically giving themselves affirmations constantly, uh, it's pretty. It's pretty good in 2021. I, I feel that, you know. Cool. Well, I might, I might uh, do that for homework. Report back when we watch the Schneider Cut. Uh, spoiler alert: that's our next flick. Uh, but until then, <laughs> until then, uh, thank you to everyone who commented. Again, follow us on social media: uh, Twitter, Facebook at I Have Some Notes. When we solicit the comments, we read them on air. Yeah. Hey, uh, there was music in this movie. Do you want better music in your life? You could maybe check out Putting It Together or Bollywood is for Lovers, two of the other member podcasts of the Alberta Podcast Network. You can check them and all of the other members of the network out right now at albertapodcastnetwork.com. So I have the illustrious job of telling you that um, you voted for it and and now you're going to get it. Two weeks from now, we are going to be talking about the uh, the Snyder Cut. So I'm going to go turn it on right now, and in about two weeks, it'll be done, and then yeah. we'll be ready for the show. <laughs> yeah, slow and low. That's how I hear you got to make it in Louisiana. <laughs> so we'll be doing that. Get your notes in. Uh, Robin, thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Uh, and for, and for the insights. Yeah, sorry. And then for the insights at the beginning. That was. Yeah, do you have any, any current pluggables you want to tell our listeners about? But there's a pandemic going on, man. I don't have time in my brain to make things. <laughs> Well, uh, uh, thank you for being uh, part of this and helping us make make this. So, and for <laughs> spending your precious pandemic time on Blues Brothers, not only doing great, interesting field research uh, for the I Have Some Notes team, but then also <laughs> as as a thank you, watching Blues Brothers. I, I paid five Canadian dollars to watch this movie. <laughs> so did we all. <laughs> no uh, refund. I think Liam owes us some pizza. Yeah. <laughs> uh, until then, I'm your host, Liam Kreswick. I'm Scott C. Bourgeois. I'm Greg Beaver. Wash your hands, Black Lives Matter, and keep watching the sky. The Edmonton Public Library presents Overdue Finds, a podcast all about what you can find at the library. Join hosts Bryce Crichton and Caroline Land as they discuss movies, music, books, pretty much any sort of pop culture and media you can think of, and likely some you've never thought of. Catch it all every two weeks at epl.ca slash podcast.